Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. How many of y'all got this in the garage? Raise your hands. Yeah, there you go. And guys are like, yeah, that stuff works. Uh, when we were redoing the roof on the fellowship hall, I suggested, why don't we just get some of that stuff at Home Depot and spray up there? That'll, uh, that'll fix it. Uh, it looks better than it would have if we'd flex sealed it, though. I think, I think we, we made the right choice. Um, admittedly, I don't watch a lot of cable television. We cut the cord a long time ago and, and really haven't missed it. But I remember... Man, com- Commercials like that used to be all over the airwaves. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the pitch guy, you know, like, like Phil Swift or, or, or Billy Mays was a, was, was a name that, that, I mean, he was a household name. He'd jump on your television screen using OxyClean to eliminate all kinds of messes, cleaning up those giant tubs of stained water with just a single scoop. It was amazing what, what OxyClean could do. Call now and we'll double your order, but don't wait for a limited time. We'll include OxySquirt bottles in the Super Sham for free pay shipping and handling. Of course, these products would flash for just a moment some sort of a guarantee. The Flex Seal will stop your toughest leaks, guaranteed to coat, seal, protect all services. Flex Seal is guaranteed to stop leaks fast. Now, I don't know how accurate that is, um, but there was, there's always something about seeing that money back guarantee, right? Just, just knowing that, that if you got it and it didn't work, that there was a refund coming your way. And, and knowing that there was a money-back guarantee made us maybe just a little more willing to give it a shot. Now, I'm sure that there were loopholes <laughs> to getting your money back, and those loopholes probably couldn't be closed with all the flex seal in the world. But we do have peace of mind when we know something is guaranteed. You buy a new car, you're very much concerned about the warranty. You're very much concerned about the guarantee. I've just went through a lengthy lemon law process. I can assure you I am mindful of the warranty and the warranty exclusions that apply. If you were in the market for a new refrigerator for your kitchen, you went to the store, you saw two models sitting side by side. They were the same size, same configuration, same features, same things, similar in price. One of those refrigerators had a 12-month warranty and the other one had a 10-year warranty. Unless you had some sort of serious brand loyalty, Most everyone would say, I'll choose the one with the 10-year warranty. There's just something about knowing that it is guaranteed, that it has the the better guarantee. Again, I don't anticipate you cutting the bottom out of your fishing boat and replacing it with a flex seal screen door, but if you did, it's guaranteed to stop leaks fast. I want you to hold on to this notion of a guarantee today as we finish up 1 Thessalonians. I said a couple weeks ago that when we get to the end of Paul's letters that that there are always some simple, practical wisdom that's there for Christians. Simple things that we can dig into, that we can dive into, just real practical, simple information for us as Christians. Simple instructions for us that we are to model our life after. Of course, I said that, and last week, Pastor Jacob went ahead and tackled the doctrine of the Trinity right here on this stage as we talk about those simple instructions for Christians. And today, I don't want that to go unnoticed, but today there's another precious doctrine of the Christian faith that calls out from our text that we need to spend time unpacking. The Reformers called this doctrine the the perseverance of the saints. In Baptist circles, you've heard it said, once saved, always saved. Our text today calls for us to dig into what I believe to be an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. And if we've got time, we might even dig into this holy kiss thing here at the end as well. If you've got your Bibles open to the very end of 1 Thessalonians, we're in the fifth chapter today. I'll be finishing up the chapter beginning here in verse 23. If you're able, would you please stand with me as we read these words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning there in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He goes on, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
be with you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouragement that it contains. I thank you for the depth with which we can mine it. I thank you, God, for the Apostle Paul and for his just gumption by the Holy Spirit to write this letter that has been so important for us as we've considered it. I ask you to bless us as we consider these words together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. Be seated. So we get to the end of the letter, and we encounter what is commonly called a, a benediction. You've heard that before if you've been in church any length of time. A, a benediction is something that comes at the end, at the end of a service. We might have a benediction. Now, that's a church word. You don't hear it out at the, you know, they don't call the, the fourth quarter the benediction of the football game. You don't call the ninth inning the benediction of the baseball game. So it's very much a church word. But it's a word that, that simply means uh, to wish well. And so at the end of a church service, when we come together, we offer a benediction. We're offering some sort of a, a well-wishing. We're offering a blessing as people depart. And when Paul finishes his letters, he does the same thing. He ends it with a positive affirmation, some sort of a, a well-wishing, a benediction that expresses his desire to bless the audience. And it just so happens that the benediction that Paul gives us here is incredibly profound because it actually provides some very compelling support for this doctrine that I have mentioned for the idea of perseverance or eternal security or once saved, always saved. If we were to simply define this, I want us to understand that we're working from the same definition. Perseverance of the saints, eternal security, once saved, always saved. It is the idea that a person who is truly born again cannot lose his or her salvation. The end, full stop, that is the definition we're working off of. A person who is truly born again cannot lose his or her salvation. Now, not every Christian you encounter would believe this. I have good friends who are Christians from other tribes, and this is a point of debate for us. Those denominations that come from a more Wesleyan influence are far more likely to reject this, this idea. So if you were to go into the Nazarene congregation or the Methodist congregation this morning, if you were to go into the holiness denomination, or, or if you were to have lunch with someone from those backgrounds today, and you said, man, our pastor talked about perseverance of the saints, eternal security, they would look at you and say, y'all believe that? Oh, we do, we believe the Bible teaches that. Most of the charismatic, charismatic denominations also reject the idea that a person who is saved cannot lose their salvation. Those denominations that come from a a more Baptistic or Puritan background, so Baptists and Presbyterians and the like, um, they would lean more in affirming this, uh, this idea, this truth. Our own statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message, clearly affirms what we believe here. It says, all true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. We as a Baptist church have said, this is our confession of faith. This is what we believe. This is when you walk into our church. We stand on this. We believe this wholeheartedly. We believe the Bible teaches this. Here we are. If you don't like it, that's great, but this is who we are and this is what we believe. So I do believe this is important. I do believe that the Bible teaches it. And at the same time, I believe that this is one of those doctrines that has put the modern church into these different camps. That, to be honest, we can have fellowship together and we can break bread together and we can do things together, but I believe this is one of these ideas that has, there's no reconciliation in, in this, which is why you have Wesleyan traditions and Puritan traditions. These camps will one day be reconciled, hear me correctly, when we all get to heaven, the Lord looks at everybody and says, the Baptist got this one right. Then it'll be reconciled. We're wrong on some things, so don't think I'm, I'm boastful. We're wrong on some things, but the Lord's gonna look and say, y'all got this one right, okay? But let me say this. It's important as we unpack these verses that the whole context of these verses is considered because if we don't consider the whole context, we can drift into some really serious errors. I had a seminary professor who said it well. He said a text without a, or he said a, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Meaning you can jump in and take a verse and make it mean whatever you want it to mean, but when you take those verses in the, in the place in which they're found, you consider the verses around it, then you're able to make a very clear argument for what you're saying out of the Word of God. So if we only use verse 23 and not verse 24, then we don't really have a clear word here. 
But because we use them both, we can understand the force of what Paul is talking about. Because he begins this benediction as most benedictions begin. He begins this benediction in the form of a prayer. Catch what he says here. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's a prayer. That's a prayer. May the God of peace, he's beseeching the Lord, he's asking the Lord to do something. But when he prays that way, may the God of peace do something, the word may doesn't obligate God to do anything. It doesn't mean that God is going to do what he has said here. Because here's the thing, you can pray this way, you can say, Lord, may you help me win the lottery today. You can pray, may the Lord do that, and the Lord is not guaranteed to do anything in that regard. You're not guaranteed to find that winning scratch off in the parking lot. You're not going to make sure that all those numbers are matched up for the monster million jackpot. It's not a guarantee. You can pray it all day long, but it's not a guarantee. May, when we pray that way, may rightly leaves the outcome in God's hands. We pray this all the way. Most of our prayers are phrased in this way. We pray for healing, but we understand that healing may not come. We pray for provision, but we understand that we may have to struggle through some things. We pray these things all the time, understanding that the outcome is not up to us, the outcome is in God's hand, and that's completely okay. But that's not the force of what Paul is saying here. In order to understand the force of what he's saying, you gotta go back and unpack verse 24 before you get to verse 23. And look what he says here in verse 24. These are words that are describing God's character and his ongoing actions on our behalf. He begins with this. He says, he who calls you is faithful. Paul begins with this adjective describing this characteristic of who God is. God is faithful. Men and women of the church, you serve a God who is absolutely faithful. This is one of his primary character traits. He is faithful. All of the synonyms that go along with faithful work here. He is trustworthy. He is believable. He is true. He is faithful. So understand this. When Paul says that God is faithful, what's he actually saying? He's saying that God is faithful to his own character to his own glory. God's not going to do anything that's contrary to who he is. God's not going to do anything that's contrary to his nature or contrary to his character. God is faithful. He is eternally committed to his glory, and he will not impugn or tarnish that. Because God's not like us in this. Because the very best among us, whoever that may be, the very best among us could be described as someone who is faithful. That's a it's a high praise. If somebody looks at you and says, man, you are, so, you are so faithful. You are so faithful. You're faithful to your family. You're faithful to your church. You're faithful to your job. Whatever it is, faithful is a, it's a praise. It's a high praise. But even the very best among us could be described as faithful and then in our very next breath <laughs> do something that would be considered unfaithful. Every single one of us are, have that potential within us as as, as closely as we may try to follow the Lord, every single one of us has the ability in our very next breath to do something that is unfaithful. But Paul goes on. So God is faithful, but now he reinforces that statement with an action word. He acts out of his character. Because he is faithful, his actions are defined by his character. And because of that, he says that God will surely do it. Because God is faithful, He's going to do what Paul just prayed because Paul is praying this benediction and this prayer and it is perfectly aligned with God's character and God's action. What he is asking for here is not contrary to the will of God. It's not even speculative of the will of God. What he is asking for here is a guarantee of the will of God. God is faithful to his own character, and because God is faithful to his own character, he will do that which he says. So this means something. This means that we have a guarantee that is far surpassing anything that a TV pitch man can offer us. The guarantee that we have been given is far greater than anything you can think or imagine. Think about it for just a second. Your car warranty. It's only as good as what? the name of the manufacturer who wrote it. You buy a car, that manufacturer goes out of business next year. You've, your warranty's not good anymore. 
The money back guarantee on television is only as good as the company's willingness to honor it. But when we're talking about a guarantee of our eternal security, this guarantee is not backed by any human institution because human institutions cannot guarantee spiritual reality. I love the church. I love everything about the church. The church is God's gift to the world. But listen to me. Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church does not guarantee your eternal security. You don't get to pull a card out and say, hey, I'm a member of Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. That means that I'm, I'm good, right? Listen to me. Your church membership won't count for anything if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be a member of, we had a guy at our last church who, is, who was a pathological liar. And he would show up at a church and say, hey, I'd like to give my life to Jesus and be baptized. And so what do Baptists do when somebody says that? Man, lead them to Jesus, throw them in the tank. It turns out he'd done that to five other churches, just manipulating to relationships. And we kicked him out when we found out about it because there was no repentance. No, he wasn't interested in, in, in doing it right. The church doesn't guarantee this. The government doesn't guarantee your eternal security. The government can guarantee a lot. Your social security, guaranteed, right? The government can guarantee all kinds of things, but the government cannot guarantee your eternal security. It cannot guarantee your salvation. Your salvation, if you are truly in Christ, is guaranteed by the unchanging, eternal faithfulness of the creator God of the universe. God will do what he says. And what will he do? Said, Paul said he'll do it. What's he going to do? Well, now we understand better the force of what Paul is talking about here, and we can gain a clearer grasp of what the significance of this is. He then goes back. So going back to the beginning of this benediction, he says, we will be completely sanctified. Here again, more church words. We don't hear about sanctification outside the church. Again, the coach doesn't talk about it, the progress his team has made over the summer and say, man, these, these boys are really sanctified over the summer. They really got their act together. They're ready for fall football because they've been sanctified over the summer. We don't use that term. We don't talk about sanctification outside the church. What does it possibly mean? I think in order to understand what it means to be completely sanctified, we first have to understand what it means to be completely saved. So what does it mean to be saved? I, you know, we don't, we talk about we're Christians, but what does it mean to be saved? Well, what does it look like? Well, first we hear the gospel. In order to be saved, guess what? You got to hear and know the gospel. Nobody has ever been saved apart from the gospel, right? Uh, it, it, it is the gospel. We're not ashamed of it. It is the power of God unto salvation. Not a soul on the planet has ever been saved apart from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why it's kind of important for us to share it. Because apart from the gospel, people are perishing so the gospel, though, it comes in all kinds of means. Some of you can think of how you heard the gospel. Maybe you heard it for the first time in a sermon, and it clicked, and you responded at the end of that sermon to give your life to Jesus. Maybe somebody that you worked with or a family member shared a testimony of how they became a Christian, of what their life looked like before Christ and after Christ. You heard that testimony. Maybe you even heard the gospel shared in a song. Maybe some of you read about it through a gospel tract. I've heard stories of people being saved when they started reading the Gideon's Bible in a hotel room. I just hope they pick up the right book. I, just, a, just a secret, when I go to a hotel room and I pull the drawer open and I see that there's two books, I tend to throw one of them in the trash. It's a lie. Why would I let people continue in a lie? So... We hear the gospel, we respond in faith to the invitation of the gospel by repenting from sin and trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior. At that moment, when you give your life to Jesus, there is a legal change that takes place. The Bible speaks of this, it's another church word, and, and you, it helps to think about it like it's a ledger. So we got a ledger, a spiritual ledger, and one side of this ledger contains all of our sin debt, 
all the stuff that we've done by nature and choice that's opposed to the things of God, everything we think, say, do, go, that's displeasing to God. We've got this ledger, and this side of the ledger is completely covered with this nastiness that we call sin, but there is a moment when we give our life to Jesus where there's a change that happens, and all that nastiness is covered, and it is declared paid in full by the blood of Jesus, and we are justified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a legal transformation that happens. It happens in an instant. It's not a process. It takes place in a moment. The Bible calls this justification. We were guilty sinners under the sentence of death, but we are saved by God's grace at that moment. And that begins a process that we will be working out for the rest of our lives unless you just got saved in this last second and you were a Christian you are in this process now. You are working out what it means to be sanctified. What does this mean? This is the process that we're all in together. We learn more about the Bible. We learn how we should live, how we should walk. We learn how we shouldn't live and how we shouldn't walk. We learn from our mistakes. We learn from our triumphs. All those things are happening at once. We grow in our sanctification. We start to look more like Jesus and less like the world that we have left behind. And there's a point at which sanctification is completed. We understand when that happens. We laid to rest a dear saint yesterday who she's not being sanctified anymore. It's done because what's happened at that moment is glorification. It'll happen for all of us when we die. For a generation not yet to come, it will happen at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when these bodies are are dealt with once and for all. We enter into this point that we call glorification. And that is going to be a blissful place. It's a blissful state in which we are saved for all eternity. In that state, we are no longer inclined towards sin. We spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the saints. It will be wonderful, and we look forward to that. If you struggle with sin today as you walk with Christ, as all of us do in some capacity or another, there's coming a day that you won't struggle with that anymore because you're forever redeemed in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in a glorified state. Now, Paul is talking specifically, though, about that middle here. He he says it. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Beyond the moment of our justification, before we're glorified, where we spend our entire Christian lives being sanctified. And this is the place where God is continually working. God is continually working. If you're in Christ today, God is working in you and on you and through you. He is, he is perfecting you to a place to where you will one day be perfect, perfected in glory. He is going to bring it to a completion. Paul said elsewhere in Philippians chapter one, verse six, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We are all a work in progress, but it is progress. We're not like that. Y'all ever had a project that you didn't finish? I mean, every one of us has done something in our, in our life where we tried to get it started and, and it just, it just didn't, didn't finish, you know, and, and we've all got those things. God's not like that. Thank goodness God is not like that. When God starts something, God finishes something, and when God started a work in you, God is going to finish that work in you, and, and that doesn't mean that there aren't delays and setbacks along the way. We sin. We stumble. Jacob talked about last week the fact that we, we quench the spirit, we grieve the spirit with our actions and with our inactions. Every one of us along the way are going to have that experience. We pour water on the fire on the regular, but we are still a work in progress. Back to the Baptist faith and message, we even affirm that reality in our statement of faith. It says believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. We believe this. Every one of us can testify that and say, yeah, I remember that time where I stumbled. I remember that time where I impaired the graces. I remember that time where I, uh, the, old, the old Baptist church where I backslid. Anybody ever backslid before? If you, know, if you have, you know it, right? 
We, we recognize that that's our reality. We do go through those seasons where we're not where we ought to be. But we are working towards a goal and that we will be completely blameless when we get to the end of our sanctification. But here's the key to all this. We respond to the gospel, but who justifies? God does. We live our lives out doing the things that we're supposed to do, trying to minimize the mistakes and maximize the, the successes. But who is it that sanctifies? I can't sanctify myself. Just, I can't sanctify myself any better than I can justify myself. And so if God is the one who justifies me, then God also has to be the one who sanctifies me because I can't do it on, on my own. And we die at the end of that journey. And guess what? I can't glorify myself either. We do a good job glorifying ourselves this side of eternity. But we get to heaven and we can't glorify ourselves either. It is God who glorifies. Here's the problem. If we were the ones doing these things, if, if I could justify myself, if I could sanctify myself, indeed if I could glorify myself, it would be easy to see a pathway where I could fall off the truck, so to speak, because I'm in charge of it. I mean, how many of us? If we're put in charge of something, we know there's a potential for error. There's a, there's a potential for disaster if we're in charge of it. If this were up to us, then it would be super easy for us to completely mess it up. Thanks be to God, it's not left to us. It's not left to us. One of the most famous American preachers in history, Jonathan Edwards, he said this. He said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. Man, that's true. God is faithful. I'm not. My best efforts come up short. But God is always faithful because his character is perfect. And because his character is perfect, he is faithful to his own glory, to his own name, to his own fame. God is faithful. He's going to do this because he's faithful. Us? Not so much. But that does, that does raise a question. And it's a question you've asked before because someone you know, someone you love, has landed in this situation before. What about those who abandon the Christian faith? What about apostasy? Recent times, we've seen many high-profile individuals go down that pathway. ChristianPost.com shares just a few of the higher-profile examples we've seen in recent years, especially these deconversions, because now it happens on social media. It makes you a hero to the postmodern world if you can go on social media and talk about how you're no longer a believer. Everybody says, oh, good for you. You're so liberated. You're able to talk about how you're no longer a believer. It's like, no, you're an apostate, and we're worried for your soul. Hillsong writer Marty Sampson wrote this, time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. I'm not in it anymore. Now, he's right. Christians can be some of the most judgmental people on the planet. It's a good thing that I'm not saved by Christians, but I'm saved by Jesus. And it's a good thing that my salvation is not guaranteed by the church, but that my salvation is guaranteed by the Savior. After his divorce, Joshua Harris, author of I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and former pastor of a megachurch in Maryland, <clears throat> renounces faith, saying, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction, but the biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. David Gass was a former pastor at Grace Family Fellowship, pastor at Covenant Church and Cedar Community Church. Took to social media, announced after 40 years of being a devout follower, 20 of those being an evangelical pastor, I am walking away from the faith. Even though this has been a massive bomb drop in my life, it has been decades in the making. I don't know how you can stand in the pulpit for decades wondering how in the world you believe what you're talking about. Of course, there's many others. 
Joshua Harris, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, mentioned that word deconstructing. It's a fancy new concept in our day, but it's old as the day is long. It's where people tear apart their beliefs and they reevaluate them on the basis of contemporary movements and critical theory. We don't need to be evaluating our beliefs on the basis of contemporary winds. If you haven't noticed, they tend to change quite frequently. And what happens? Every single time people go down this road that they call deconstruction, they invariably are going to end up in a place that we call apostasy. Now, you may have loved ones in your life. They're not high-profile authors, singers, teachers, but they've rejected the faith nonetheless. The problem with apostasy is really only a problem because we don't like to have to apply logic to the situation. Let's take a generic 20-something, 20-something-year-old church member. member. We're going to name him Conrad, Jacob, just for, just for fun. Here's Conrad. <clears throat> Conrad's been a consistent part of the church for years. We don't have any Conrads in the room today, do we? I don't think so. I didn't think so. I thought Conrad was safe. Does anybody know a Conrad? Okay. We can talk about it. Some of y'all do. This is not your Conrad, okay? Conrad's been part of the church for years. The last couple years have been tough on Conrad. A former pastor experienced some sort of a moral failure. Conrad's job changed. And now he's been working around some folks who don't think like the people in his church or the people in his family. Conrad's marriage has been rocky as of late. And several Sundays have passed since Conrad came to church. But nobody really noticed because we don't notice anymore. Because attendance is way less predictable now than it was in 2019. And so we, don't, we didn't notice that Conrad wasn't here. But then one day, Conrad took to Facebook. And he goes on Facebook and he says he's been thinking a lot about what he believes and he's just not sure he can follow a God whose people are so sinful. Now, it's Conrad. Conrad has officially deconstructed. He has applied contemporary theory to his ancient beliefs and he finds that they come up wanting. Now, If we believe that the Bible teaches once saved, always saved, and what are we supposed to do with our friend Conrad? He was such a part of the church. He he served. He did all the things that you're supposed to do. What do we do with this guy who was part of the youth group, played guitar in the band? What do we do with this guy? Logic, good old-fashioned logic, solves the problem. Hang with me. If we believe someone who is born again can't revert back to their former state, that's what we believe when we talk about perseverance of the saints. A person who is truly saved can't lose that. They can't be unsaved. But a person has to be truly saved in order to be eternally saved. If we believe that, then there are two options. Option one, Conrad's life has taken its toll. Conrad has been quenched. The spirit has been quenched in his life. And one day, Conrad will repent and return. That's possible. It's completely possible. Because we believe what we believe, that a person who's truly saved can't be unsaved. So a person who experiences an intense time of backsliding, that that they're going to come to that point like the prodigal son where they realize that, that life is terrible but God is good and even if his people don't get it right all the time, at least God is faithful and I can trust him and I'm going to be part of what God is doing. That's possible. Option number two. Conrad's faith was fraudulent to begin with and he was never a believer at all. We may not like to say this, but the likelihood is very high that the apostate's problem is the second one, not the first one. Why do I say that? Because if you've tasted the goodness of God, if you have received the great salvation provided to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, If your sin has been washed away and you know that you've been rescued from hell, how in the world 
could you publicly, verbally, vocally, willingly say, I recant of my Christian faith? Again, I'm not saying that's not possible, but it sure seems impractical. Regardless, though, of whichever one of those outcomes is true, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to treat the apostate the same way. We pray for them, we reason with them, and we work for their return to faith, to good standing, or we work for their understanding of the gospel and salvation. We treat them the same way. A person who says, I'm not a Christian anymore, well, that's the same way we treat any non-Christian. We share the gospel, we, we pray for them, we work with them, we, we encourage them, we do everything we would do with a non-Christian. A person who's just backslidden out the back door, same thing. You wouldn't treat them any different. You pray for them, you share the gospel with them, you pray for their return. I'm reminded of the parable of the soils in this situation. Jesus told the parable about the seed falling in various places. And there were some soils where the seed showed growth, but it couldn't sustain that growth because of the lack of depth or the choking effect of the thorns. What happened to the seed that landed in shallow soil or among thorns? The plant died. What did that plant look like? All the other plants. What did that plant smell like? All the other plants. What did that plant do? It did what plants do. But that plant did not have the ability to persevere. And as a result, it died. There's a couple of reasons we don't like this. One, we care about our loved ones. And the idea of them never being saved is deeply troubling to us, as it should be. We saw a lot of positive things from them. We saw them at church. We saw them singing the choir, going mission trips. We saw all the things. And the fact that all that could be fraudulent is very concerning and uncomfortable for us. But then there's a second reason. We just don't like to be tricked. I've had people in close circles with me who completely turned their back on their faith. And it is mind-blowing and aggravating and angering to have somebody that could be so close in your circle and show so much prowess in the Christian faith and to say it was all just a fraud. But I'm going to tell you this. The scariest thing is not the fact that we can easily be fooled by fake conversions. We're limited in our perspective. It's easy to understand why we could be duped in that regard. But I think what's even scarier is that there are many people who have even fooled themselves. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. (laughs) One of the scariest passages in the Bible. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you don't slow down when you read that verse, you're reading too fast. People. That did these things. I cast out demons. I never cast out a demon before. Don't know that I'm signing up for that job either. I mean, I've never done that before. I can't even say I've done mighty works. These people did. And Jesus cast them out. So how can I know? Like the old preachers used to say, how can you know that you know that you know? How can I know? How can I be certain if if these people didn't pass the test? There's a Bible full of answers to that question, but I'm going to give you two. First one is walking in the light. Listen to 1 John 1, verse 7. But if we, Christians, walk in the light... As he, Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What does it mean to walk in the light? 
mean, the Bible uses this imagery a lot between walking in light and walking in darkness. What does he mean when he says walking in the light? And I think here this is not a, a literal thing where, where, you know, we turn the lights off when we're in the dark, we turn the lights on and we're in the light. I'm in the light like crazy right now. Walking in the light means that we live as debtors to the gospel. It means that you wake up in the morning knowing that if it weren't by the, but by the grace of God, you don't stand a chance. Walking in the light means that, that our lives ought to reflect something of the fact that we have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Again, I'm not suggesting for a second that we walk around with halos on and holier than thou and all those sort of things, but there ought to be a recognition as we walk in the light of who Jesus is and what great thing he has done for us. And that ought to color the way we go about our lives. It ought to influence the decisions that we make, the, the, the way that we go about ourselves. We bear spiritual fruit, not because it's fake, but because it's growing on a good spiritual tree. And I'll say this, listen, church, Walking in the light doesn't mean that we never sin. Because if that were the case, guess what? We'd all be walking in darkness. But what does John say here? It clearly says that as we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. Not cleaned us, not will clean us, but cleanses us. That means that as we walk... There is an ongoing process of dealing with sin and being cleansed from sin. If you want to try to live your life without sin, great, you're going to fail. And if that is your standard, that if you, if you fail, then it's over, then you're never going to live in, in, a, in a way that, that, that has peace. It is an ongoing process. God keeps cleaning. The Holy Spirit keeps working because we are being sanctified. What happens, though, is the devil uses our sin as a way to provoke doubt and lead us to ineffectiveness. Christian, if you are doubting your salvation, you're not going to amount to much of anything for the kingdom. Because if you've got doubts, you're never going to want to do anything or serve in any capacity. You're, just, you're not. And so if the devil's got you stuck in doubts, then he has created someone who is ineffective. Secondly, the security of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Listen to verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen to that. The Holy Spirit testifies on your behalf. I mean, this is courtroom language. The, the Holy Spirit bears witness. And so you imagine you go to a courtroom and you have to make a testimony. Your testimony had better be accurate or true. You're going to be in trouble. So when a witness is given, that witness is expected to be true. And the Holy Spirit is bearing witness that for those who are truly in Christ, they truly are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is, is constantly working and reminding us that we are children of God. The Spirit is testifying on our behalf. So if you are wrestling with assurance of your salvation, and we do from time to time, you need to understand that one of the Spirit's primary functions in your life is to confirm the legitimacy of your faith. The Holy Spirit is working in you and through you to confirm the legitimacy of your faith. And so I will say this, Christian, that if you are constantly wrestling with the affirmation of your faith, that the Spirit's not testifying or you're not hearing it. And either way, it's something that needs to be tended to. If you lack that assurance, well, here's a real simple thing to do. It's a gift. It's a grace of God. Ask God to give it to you. Lord, I struggle with hearing the Spirit's testimony about the validity of my faith. Lord, would you give me that gift? Would you give me that blessing? Would you give me that? I really do believe God will give it because he says it's part of what the Spirit does in our life. It's not a might. It's not a maybe. It's not if you behave yourself, the Spirit will show up. That's not how it works, right? I and mean, we talked about this last week. The Spirit's there. He's there. And he's doing all of the work that he's supposed to do. You may suppress it and quench it and quieten it, 
But he's there working and available to do that which he's supposed to do. And so if you're not hearing, it's because you're not listening. So ask God to make it clear. If you lack those assurances, you look at the whole of your life. And if you see a general malaise towards the things of God, then it's not something you ought to ignore. I don't know if you've ever had a, a car with a, a check engine light come on. You see that check engine light come on, and, and uh, your immediate reaction is, oh, what's that? And some of your spouses will drive around forever and ever, amen, with that check engine light on. And you get in the car, and you say, honey, when's this check engine light come on? Oh, it's been on for six months. Why don't you let me know? Uh, this, this is not us. I get a call, I mean, immediately. So this is not us. Sometimes I pick on the preacher's wife, and this is, she's good about this. I mean, the, the car does something funny, and I'm hearing about it. But that, that light means something's wrong. Maybe it's something small. Maybe it's not. But something's wrong. We get these, these, these feelings that, that, that something is, is out of sorts. This is one of these times where if you're lacking the assurance of faith that that check engine light's coming on and saying, hey, you need to check into this. Don't ignore this. If you see that, that general malaise towards the things of God, don't ignore it. I'm not suggesting you're not a Christian. Please don't hear that. But if you see that light come on, what do you do when the check engine light comes on the car? You go by the auto parts store, they plug a little machine in, and they say, whatever, whatever the code is, and you gotta go solve all the problems, right? You need to find somebody, find a trusted friend, find a pastor to talk about it with, and say, brother, I, I've struggled with this, and I'm just, I'm wrestling through some things. You don't wanna ignore it. You don't wanna miss it. Because maybe it's nothing. Maybe the gas cap just needs to be tightened a little bit. It could be serious. You don't want to miss it. Then I'd say this. Most of us today, we recognize that we're Christians. We are truly saved. And because we are truly saved, then God is going to do exactly what he said he would here. He is going to sanctify you completely. He's going to sanctify you completely. And he's going to make sure that on the day of the Lord, your whole spirit, soul, and body will be blameless. He's going to do it. Why? Because he's faithful, and he said he would. And because of that, because we recognize that, we can rejoice in the fact that God has rescued us from sin and will continue to do exactly what he said we'd do. And so for that, we give thanks. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your precious words. I thank you, Father, that you have given us assurance that we don't have to walk through life wondering, questioning. And even when doubts arise, we don't have to remain in those doubts. You have given us your word and you have testified through the Spirit that those who are truly in Christ, oh Lord, the good news is they're truly in Christ. At the same time, Lord, we understand that there's people in our lives, loved ones, they showed so much potential. But life has happened and they have either drifted away or they were never in Christ to begin with. And Lord, we've all heard the excuses. The church is bad, the people are bad, the pastor's bad, I was mistreated, they were unkind, they were unwelcoming, they did this dumb thing. But God, you're not guilty of any of those things. You're not unkind. Oh God, you are so kind. You don't do dumb things, God. You do everything perfectly. And God, you, 
You didn't abandon us in our time of need. You were there for us. You were with us. And so, Lord, where we come up short, God, you never, ever do. So all the excuses ought to fade away in the understanding of your faithfulness and your commitment to your word. So God, we acknowledge today the church is broken because it's got people in it. But they're people that you're working on. They're people who are in process. They're people who were saved from sin and will one day be perfect in glory. Lord, there are days today where we're just a hot mess. But you're a good God. And you will be faithful to complete the work that you started on us. And so, God, we rejoice in that. For those today whose check engine light is on, may they have the courage to seek counsel. Maybe everything's fine. Maybe just life has gotten messy. Maybe it's just as simple as screwing the gas cap on a little tighter. Or it may be, Lord. But they're not really in Christ. And today, more than anything, they need to give their life to Jesus, be justified so that you can complete their sanctification as well. May we give thanks for the great salvation we've received from the great Savior we've been given. And may all of our days be in the light as Jesus himself is in the light. God, you are good. And we rejoice in that today. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.